This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. This is the one-year Bible reading for August 3rd, and we're going to start today in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 14. It was after this that Manasseh rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David from the west of the Gihon Spring in the Kidron Valley to the Fish Gate, and continuing around the hill of Ophel, where it was built very high. And he stationed his military officers in all the fortified cities of Judah, Manasseh also removed the foreign gods from the hills and the idols from the Lord's temple. He tore down all the altars he had built on the hill where the temple stood and all the altars that were in Jerusalem, and he dumped them outside the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings on it. He also encouraged the people of Judah to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. However, the people still sacrificed at the pagan shrines, but only to the Lord their God. The rest of the events of Manasseh's reign, his prayer to God and the words of the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Manasseh's prayer, the account of the way God answered him, and an account of all his sins and unfaithfulness are recorded in the record of the seers. It includes a list of the locations where he built pagan shrines and set up Asherah poles and idols before he repented. When Manasseh died, he was buried at his palace. Then his son, Amon, became the next king. Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. Just fixing this because the cat is coming. Oh dear. Okay, Norman, out of the way. <laughs> He did, no, I knew that was gonna happen. You see that? Okay, technical difficulties this morning. Bear with me. This is the entertainment factor of the day. <laughs> oh boy, look at me. <laughs> okay, let's try again. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He worshiped and sacrificed to all the idols his father had made. I'm still all messed up. Oh boy. Okay. But unlike his father, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Instead, Ammon sinned even more. At last, Ammon's own officials plotted against him and assassinated him in his palace. But the people of the land killed all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and they made his son Josiah the next king. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor, David. He did not turn aside from doing what was right. During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. Then in the 12th year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols and cast images. He saw to it that the altars for the images of Baal and their incense altars were torn down. 
He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the pagan priests on their own altars, and so he purified Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same thing in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, even as far as Naphtali. He destroyed the pagan altars in the Asherah poles, and he crushed the idols into dust. He cut down the incense altars throughout the land of Israel and then returned to Jerusalem. In the 18th year of his reign, after he had purified the land and the temple, Josiah appointed Shaphan, son of Azaliah, Masiah, the governor of Jerusalem, and Joah, son of Joahaz, the royal historian, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. They gave Hilkiah, the high priest, the money that had been collected by the Levites who served as gatekeepers at the temple of God. The gifts were brought by people from Manasseh, Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, as well as from all Judah, Benjamin, and the people of Jerusalem. He entrusted the money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they paid the workers who did the repairs and renovation. Thus they hired carpenters and masons and stuck and cut stone for the walls and timber for the rafters and beams. They restored what earlier kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. The workers served faithfully under the leadership of Jahath and Obadiah, Levites from the Merarite uh, clan, and Zechariah and Meshulam, Levites of the Kohathite clan. Other Levites, all of whom were skilled musicians, were put in charge of the laborers of the various trades. Still others assisted their, as secretaries, officials, and gatekeepers. As Hilkiah, the high priest, was recording the money collected at the Lord's temple, he found the book of the law of the Lord. Let's see. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan. Shaphan took the scroll to the king and reported, your officials are doing everything they were assigned to do. The money that was collected at the temple of the Lord has been given to the supervisors and the workmen. Shaphan also said to the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Aziah, the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for all the remnant of Israel and Judah. Ask him about the words written in the scroll that has been found. The Lord's anger has been poured out against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the word of the Lord. We have not been doing what this scroll says we must do. So Hilkiah and the other men went to the newer Mishnah section of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. She was the wife of Shalem, son of Tikva, and grandson of Harhas, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go and tell the man who sent you, This is what the Lord says. I will certainly destroy this city and its people. All the curses written in the scroll you have read will come true. For the people of Judah have abandoned me and worshipped pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will be poured out against this place, and nothing will be able to stop it. 
But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before God when you heard what I said against this city and its people. You humbled yourself and tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. So I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. I will not send the promised disaster against this city and its people. I will not send the promised disaster against this city and its people until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her message back to the king. Then the king summoned all the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people from the greatest to the least. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, regulations, and laws within, with all his heart and soul. He promised to obey the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. And he required that everyone in Jerusalem and the people of Benjamin make a similar pledge. As the people of Jerusalem did this, they renewed their covenant with God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed all detestable idols from the entire land of Israel and required everyone to worship the Lord, their God. And throughout the rest of his lifetime, they did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their ancestors. I'm going to finish the book of Romans today, reading Romans chapter 16. Um, which is really Paul's greetings to those who serve with him in ministry. And I think it just underscores the importance of the body of Christ. We think of the Apostle Paul, but here we hear about many of the people that have supported uh, and uplifted him in his ministry. Give my greetings to Apelles, a good man whom Christ approves, and give my best regards to the members of the household of um, Aristobulus, Greet Herodoin, my relative. Greet the Christians in the household of Narcissus. Say hello to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's workers, and to dear Persis, who has worked so hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who has been a mother to me. And please give my greetings to Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Give my greetings to Philogus, Julia, Nersus, and his sister, and to Olympus and all the other believers who are with them. Greet each other in Christian love. All the churches of Christ send you their greetings. And now I make one more appeal to my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things that are contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. But everyone knows that you are obedient to the Lord. This makes me very happy. I want you to see clearly what is right and to stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, 
and Sosipater, my relatives, send you their good wishes. I, Tertius, the one who is writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings too, as a Christian brother. Gaius says hello to you, I am his guest, and the church meets here in his home. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you his greetings, and so does Cordus, a Christian brother. God is able to make you strong, just as the good news says. It is the message about Jesus Christ and his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now, as the prophets foretold, and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere, so that they might believe and obey Christ. To God, who alone is wise, be the glory forever, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Psalm 26, a psalm of David. Declare me innocent, O Lord, for I have acted with integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and affections. For I am constantly aware of your unfailing love, and I have lived according to your truth. I do not spend time with liars or go along with hypocrites. I hate the gatherings of those who do evil. I refuse to join in with the wicked. I wash my hands to declare my innocence. I come to your altar, O Lord, singing a song of thanksgiving, singing a song of thanksgiving and telling of all your miracles. I love your sanctuary, Lord, the place where your glory shines. Don't let me suffer the fate of sinners. Don't condemn me along with murderers. Their hands are dirty with wicked schemes. They constantly take bribes. But I am not like that. I do what is right. So in your mercy, save me. I have taken a stand, and I will publicly praise the Lord. Proverbs twenty nineteen, A gossip tells secrets, so don't hang around with someone who talks too much. If you're still with me, thank you. We have been plagued with technical difficulties this morning. We're going to end today with The Life You've Always Wanted, moving to a new chapter this morning um, called Appropriate Smallness, The Practice of Servanthood. And Ortberg tells the story of three messiahs, three men who each believe that they're the messiah themselves, living together in a mental institution in Michigan. And it is both a funny and a sad account of how they interact with each other. And he writes, the bitter irony is the very delusion to which they clung so tenaciously is what cut them off from life. To stop being the Messiah sounded terrifying, but it would have been their salvation if they could only have tried. If they could have stopped competing to see who gets to be the Messiah, they could have become Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Those were their actual names. Quote, now with God's help, I shall become myself, unquote. To maintain the illusion that you are the Messiah, you must shut out any evidence to the contrary. If you want to be your own God, you have to settle for living in a tiny universe where there is room for only one person. Your world could grow infinitely bigger if you were only willing to become, in the words of a friend of mine, appropriately small. And he talks about the fact that we all have our own share of a Messiah complex, that we have been trying to take God's place ever since the beginning of time, and it takes its form in pride. So how do we recognize pride in ourselves? He looks at different forms, the first one being vanity. Vanity involves a preoccupation with my image or appearance, if we exercise in spandex, ever, 
there's a good chance we have this problem. If we work out at a gym where there are mirrors on the wall and we watch, that's also a strong sign. If when we get new photographs developed, we pretend we're looking at the other people in the picture while secretly we're only looking at ourselves, we might very well have this problem. Vanity is perhaps the most common form of pride. It can be irritating and silly, but it is fortunately not the most dangerous. Next, he talks about stubbornness. One who is often reproved yet remains stubborn will suddenly be broken beyond healing, says the writer of Proverbs. Stubbornness is the pride that causes us to shun correction. It renders us unable to, to uh, stop defending ourselves. When someone points out an error or flaw, we def uh, sorry evade or deny or blame someone else. Exclusion. At the deepest level, pride is the choice to exclude both God and other people from their rightful place in our hearts. Jesus said that the essence of spiritual life is to love God and love people. Pride destroys our capacity to love. The greedy and the gluttonous may still be able of a certain kind of love, but pride is a form of anti-love. Pride moves us to exclude instead of embrace. Pride moves us to bow down before a mirror rather than before God. Pride moves us to judge rather than to serve. Pride means that not only we want to be smart and wealthy, but also that we will not be satisfied until we are smarter and wealthier than those around us. Pride is essentially competitive in nature. And so, of course, we want to move away from that in our lives. I think we're all guilty of those things at times. And he asks us to seek after humility. Humility has to do with submitted willingness. It involves a healthy self-forgetfulness. We will know we have begun to make progress in humility when we find that we get so enabled by the Holy Spirit to live in the moment that we cease to be preoccupied with ourselves one way or the other. When we are with others, we are truly with them, not wondering how they can be of benefit to us. Indeed, humility involves a revolution of the soul, the realization that the universe does not revolve around us. Humility always brings a kind of relief. If we were to grow into it, humility would not be a burden. It would be an immense gift. Humility is the freedom to stop trying to be what we're not or pretending to be what we're not and accepting our appropriate smallness. It is, in, uh, in Luther's words, humility is the decision to let God be God. But right here we meet with difficulty. How on earth can we purpose pursue humility? Pride is a persistent problem for people who strive after spiritual growth. When I am trying to do something good, I am intensely aware of it, and I tend to be aware of other people who aren't putting forth the same effort, then I tend to think they should compare my effort with their sloth. The result is pride, comparison, comparison judgmentalism, and a lack of love. Ironically, these people may be more virtuous than I in a thousand other ways. They may have received much less support and encouragement in teaching than I, but these thoughts are less likely to occur to me. So how do we practice servanthood? How do we attain humility in the face of a world that is so saturated in pride? That is the subject of our next reading. So have a beautiful day. Love you all.